On this episode of Contra, I interview Dr. Timothy Perret. Tim is a psychologist that's been practicing for over 30 years, and his current specialty is in narrative therapy. We talk about uh, how he's come to believe that this is one of the most powerful interventions for an individual seeking therapy, and as well as some of the other approaches in the field, and uh, how he views consciousness and what he calls the old brain. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Contra. I have Timothy Pear here with me, who is a psychologist practicing in Victoria. And uh, well, yeah, welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you, Greg. This is fun. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. So um, what we talked about before the podcast was, you know, how you see psychology has kind of changed and grown over the last, you know, say 100 years. And then, you know, how your practice has shifted over the last few years. Can you mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, when, actually, when I think about it, going back, when I when I did it in the master's level, uh, when I, in training in psychology, one of the things they did focus on, right, the first step in a way to become a therapist, that was actually pretty effective, very simple, but they spent a lot of the time teaching us in one course just to be good listeners. Okay. And they kind of call it active listening. So they wanted you to be able to... So we, we kind of had paired off with another student. And the student, the other student would have some difficulty they were going through. You know, probably encouraged not to be too intense or serious. <laughs> okay. But, you know, something they were going through. And then they would talk. And then you would respond as the, you know, uh, the therapist. And your goal was to respond basically exactly what they said. So mm-hmm. they taught us to like paraphrase and to repeat back what you heard. And you had to record it and then you had to write it down. And what you found out really quickly was that when somebody speaks to you about what they're going through, often you don't actually paraphrase and go and, and reflect back. You actually add things. Okay. And, you know, so they, we would start with an interview and then you would, if you listen to it afterwards, you'd say, no, I changed the word there. The person said they were you know, going through a difficult time and then you'd say, well, wow, you know, how are you dealing with that stress? And you realize they didn't say stress. And so you were hearing it somewhat from our own perspective. And of course, we're going to project onto that what we think we would feel. Right. Or what they might have said if from, you know, from our own experience. So, and then... Do you see that as like one of the fundamental good measures of a psychologist is their ability just to be a good listener to their the client or the patient? I, I really do, actually. I think that that was a course that still sticks with me. And the point was that we think we're good listeners, mm-hmm. but we're not aware how we're coloring what we're hearing with our own experience. And until we start to really be conscious of saying, so, like often it would be like, so are you saying this? So you, hmm. and you, you know, or you say, it sounds like you're saying this. So put and, it as a question rather than a Yeah, statement. which is kind of respecting that you don't know and you're trying to get clarity. Now, what the funny part of it in some ways is that at first we had to repeat exactly what they were saying. And, you know, some people probably get irritated by that because, you know, you say, oh, I'm going through a difficult time. Oh, you're going through a difficult time. Yeah. And then... 
But when you, but it was a good thing to do, uh, so that you realize you weren't straying from what the person was actually saying. Was it hard not to have your thoughts drift at that time? It was hard yeah. to think. You know, wonder what they're really feeling. But you were supposed to stay right with them. Mm-hmm. And then when you got better at it, <laughs> later in the course they called it advanced accurate empathy. Where okay. you were, <laughs> sounds like a real scientific process, but you were allowed at that point to show that you might be able to read between the lines and say something like if a person's describing some painful thing they went through, anger, let's say, at somebody, and you you could say, it seems to me there might be some sadness in, in what you're experiencing. And if that... The person might say no, but you might have sensed it mm-hmm. and you think that they're not talking about that part of their experience. So you're kind of underlining that or bringing it out, which might lead to insight on their part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you didn't sort of pry it out of them. You just kind of showed an interest in something that isn't being said. But wow. it, was, it was a kind of a neat idea that to be helpful... I think we have to set aside what we think will be helpful and trying to really, you know, get a sense of what actually is helpful in in, in therapy. I mean, I, I, there were studies that I remember hearing um, that said the most important thing in a relation in, in therapy was the relationship. So it wasn't the approach. So then, you know, we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy or or Freudian or psychoanalytic therapy yeah. or uh, you know, there's probably hundreds now, right? But it wasn't so much which approach seemed to be most effective, but whether the relationship was one of support, listening, uh, connection, you know, believing in the person, I think, respecting them, and that that was what people seemed to respond to. When they felt they had a good relationship, they felt the therapy was effective. So it wasn't the kind of therapy, but more mm. that, that common or, you know, factor. And would that come from authenticity? Like, or could some people fake that? No, that's a good point. I, I think it does come from authenticity and, and uh, in the sense of being, yeah, not playing a role of the mm-hmm. therapist. Um, well, I mean, that kind of leads actually to the next thing that I, you know, in my own progression or trying you know learning what turns you on like you'll listen to different theories about how how, what's helpful in helping people change Mm -hmm. and you know i would say most of them are really talking about the same thing but from different slight different angles so you know the, the most popular therapy these days that you hear about or the most you know when people ask about therapy uh they usually have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy i've certainly heard that i don't yeah. actually really know what it means okay but, well yeah. what you know what it, often you'll hear i think there's a bias somewhat because it can be studied or it has been studied more effectively than the other approaches okay it might be more logical and sequential and mm-hmm. so uh physicians or you know often refer people for therapy and i think it's it's more of a medical model like you know, here's, it makes sense. The, beha- the the cognitions are incorrect. If we change the cognitions, people will get better. You know, okay. if they change their thinking. But it's almost like there's many ways to get to that. So if some another therapy, like emotionally focused therapy or 
Rogerian therapy, which was when, um, you know, big Carl Rogers came out and his main thing was to listen to feelings. Hmm. So he would just be, he called client-centered therapy. He would just listen to the person's feelings and be present to them. And it was okay. all about, I'm here, I hear you, and I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I'm just going to ask you what you're going through. So it was very different in a way from the other one, cognitive behavior, which was all about, let's look at your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they would even say there are you know irrational thoughts that lead to suffering. For instance, if you somebody, your friend seems to be upset at you, the irrational thought might be, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be accepted in the world, or um, I'm not as popular as I thought. Uh, I, I won't be able to make friends, which are kind of, they would say that's an irrational thought. When you mm-hmm. have one trouble with one friend and you've jumped to this generalization. So they kind of help you to look at it logically and question it and then shift that view or notice your own patterns of irrational thinking. Whereas in a more emotional approach would be not so much to talk about those facts and what the, how the person thinks about it, but just how they feel about it. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I, I mean, the, the emotional part, they might say, want to ask the person how they're feeling, but as they talk about how they're feeling, they might solve the problem that's contradictory in, in the th- mm-hmm. thought itself. So they might say, you know, I'm really sad that my friend, you know, has rejected me or whatever, that I'm having this tough time. And then they might start saying... But you know, maybe I shouldn't take it so badly, and you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I need to just reach out, and so the client would solve the problem themselves without anybody questioning the way they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of sounds to me like when you're teaching. So, I if you take for example teaching skiing. If you can become a fairly competent skier, but until you teach somebody to ski. Now I think you get some new insights into it when somebody says, how do you turn? Oh, well, you, all you do is throw your weight this way. And they'll ask you like, well, what do you do with your inside leg? And then you'll actually have to carefully, if you're a good teacher, articulate all the different things that you've stored into muscle memory a long time ago and maybe actually find a couple of those things that you're not doing properly yourself Yeah. and have that. Yeah, you'll just, you don't need a, a head instructor. Right. You can just articulate that and find the little flaws and the leaps in your logic that you're using to jump over those things and yeah yeah and and that i think you know it's interesting looking at as we're talking about i I can see the evolution in in a way where psychology has gone in the sense that there was the rogerian carl rogers was all about emotions Mm -hmm. the people on the cognitive behavioral side were much more about uh thoughts and but they were eventually uh, I mean, one therapy, which I think is more current, it's probably more like 30 years old now, but narrative therapy came along. And, and that uh, was an approach that basically said, let's listen to the client. So it, it was also very emotionally focused about what they're experiencing, but also the story. So the story would be more mm. thoughts, right? And they, they, foc- they called it narrative therapy. This is Michael White and David Epstein, who Australian therapists or psychologists i think uh who came up with narrative therapy they called it that because they in in their research and uh, they used actually they looked outside their own field of psychology 
and into philosophy and stuff and they saw that storytelling is like a you know central human behavior yeah, that we do yeah. that so they focused on what is the story the person has about their experience and that would include the emotions and the thinking and very respectful to listen to it from their point of view so not to interject a kind of a you know well why did you do that or why you know questioning them or they would almost they want to kind of step back as much as possible so that they're not forcing their worldview onto the client okay and they even talk about it in a way where they would say that therapy can be another form of colonization you know like the therapist has a view apparently of of what is normal what's expected mm -hmm. what is abnormal behavior and the therapist is going to try and move the poor person from abnormal behavior towards some kind of normal behavior okay and then they they're very aware that that could be really you know colonizing somebody and actually you know uh, sort of marginalizing them or or you know putting them into a category and and not really trying to understand it from their point of view so instead the narrative people will just say what is your experience how are you looking at it is there any other way to, to look at it that you would find more helpful or they would call it exceptions so mm -hmm. you know the person would say this is what i'm going through tell the stories of what their life is going like and then they say are there other times are there any times when you don't feel let's say depressed and then they'd say yeah you know sometimes when i'm doing this and they say okay well, what's that about so that's like it's not the dominant story of being depressed and that you know life is meaningless it's a side story but it's it's still in there it's still their worldview yeah and then they would emphasize tell me more about that you know with the idea in a sense that that story seems to be um helpful so they just try to bring the more positive life-affirming stories to the surface yeah and i think what they the term they might use is helpful so they would say you know is that in their mind they're thinking if helpful maybe this another word would be effective you know like okay so you're really you know not feeling good and you're spending a lot of time alone at home do you find that and they try you, <laughs> you got to be careful you don't make it sound like you're patronizing but you say you know is it helpful to, to spend time alone right now mm -hmm. and they might say yeah but i'm probably doing it too much okay and you say oh, well why do you think you're doing it too much well i'm not connecting with and so you you basically draw out the person's wisdom by asking them about things that are working in their life that are effective versus things that they're doing or thinking that are ineffective so like a lot of the it sounds like a lot of these therapies are just giving somebody an opportunity to articulate their own experience and relate it to a active listener yeah, and I think that that was a big jump uh, in therapy in the sense that there was a time when we all, you know, we watch movies or something. We think of Freud. Freud mm -hmm. was supposed to be, you know, he looked the part too, like this expert yeah. who understands, you know, what is wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. And is basically going to just, you know, look straight into your mind and find out what where the errors Where's are. Where's the hang up? And yeah. that what, he what stage of development are you yeah. regressing to? Right? And, and, and that somehow there's something wrong in the way you perceive the world 
and it has something to do with the way you were brought up probably right so they, there's always that question like Freud would say something you know tell me more about your mother or something yeah, yeah. as if <laughs> there was something specific that they could find but it was more like they were the experts on you mm -hmm. and they were going to tell you at the end whether you were healthy or unhealthy and even to the point where they would say to people during analysis so psychoanalysis they say during the analysis period which may take up to say two years and sometimes they would see people twice a week or something or more wow. you shouldn't make any changes any like significant changes in your life until you complete your analysis <laughs> over two years yeah because <laughs> If you make changes like get married or change your job or do anything like that, you won't know whether you're making healthy decisions until you've analyzed, you've been analyzed and you understand and I you, yourself. I tell you what yeah. decisions to make. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe somewhat <clears throat> more positive that maybe at the end you've analyzed yourself to a degree and now you know how to. Yeah. How to make good decisions. Although but it was, was at this time, would there be data? Like, is that even if we now have come farther than that is there data saying that that was more effective than nothing say that's a good point i mean there has been a lot of research on therapy i remember when i was going to university where there a lot of the research showed that therapy wasn't very effective really, really? if compared to a placebo and what i would always, they use as a placebo for therapy well they might do something like to try and like they'd have two people doing therapy and then they might have somebody just meeting with somebody <laughs> and okay. just talking about anything yeah to try and make it you know control group something they could compare to mm -hmm. or therapy versus no therapy yeah you know so somebody a lot you know you check in with how people are doing who are, say they're depressed six months later you check in again then you have the people that are going to therapy for six mm -hmm. months and they found out their people weren't doing that much better Mm -hmm. which is pretty disturbing when I was a student. How do they, they control for the fact that life just consistently gets worse all the time? <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so hopefully that the idea that that's the factor that's different. If you do it enough, enough people, yeah. that it should show whether it was. But I, I don't know. I haven't seen any of those more recent studies around whether it's how overall what the effect is, you know, how, how effective it is. Um, but I guess going back to what we were talking about, the idea that um, the, the Freudian or that early therapy, the expert as the doctor or whatever, was, going to, was an expert on behavior, the mind and everything. And you were there and they were going to tell you, in a sense, what was wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as it evolved, now it's much in narrative therapy, those, that, that approach really honed in on how that doesn't it's like by by its you know it's very nature it's disempowering yeah right if you're going to sit down with somebody and you're going to say i know you better than you know you or i know which direction will be is healthy mm -hmm. and that you can treat the person in a kind of a abrupt way or challenge them on their beliefs is really dis you know, disempowering yeah, and it's like, you know, I'm not a, I generally don't like to throw around this word, but it does sound very patriarchal, really. It does. Like you're going to sit down with somebody who's a better human being, a more knowledgeable human being than you, mm -hmm. and they're going to listen to you and tell you all the ways you're doing wrong and how mm -hmm. you should change your life. Yeah. Which 
I'm sure there's some people out there that probably need that. Um, at least that's my intuition, but oftentimes maybe not. And I've, I've also heard that, you know, therapy never works if somebody doesn't show up on their own accord. I, I don't, I'm curious what your opinion is on that. Yeah. No, and, and I think the funny thing, my experience is that people might think when they come to therapy that they want advice or they want direction. Mm-hmm. But if you give them direction or advice, they usually don't seem comfortable almost yeah. immediately. Yeah. So it not only is it not that effective, and it might be disempowering to give people advice, but it also doesn't work because I think, I mean, one of the things is people won't take on behavior or change their thoughts until they believe in it. Right? Mm-hmm. They're not, it's not going to stick even if you share something with them. And if they don't really believe it or it doesn't make sense to them, they're not going to remember it once they're out the door. Yeah. So it's much better if people look at their own life and decide how they want to change it or what isn't working for them or even what their, how their thoughts aren't working for them, certain thoughts that they're having. Mm-hmm. And in this approach, like narrative... It's not only narrative, there's a category they call collaborative approaches. So it's not that the expert is going to tell you, and it's not that you're not, the therapist isn't an influence, but that you're collaborating. Mm-hmm. It's more like, you know, that idea of the personal coach or something. And so, would this be like a similar thing, like pers- like peer support groups, like Alcoholics Anonymous or, you know, all these addict kind of support groups is that you just have a a context to talk about your experience to people who are listening and not judging. And yeah, I don't know. Well, no, that would be a little bit different because I mean, I'm thinking more one-on-one therapy, like, or if it was a group, but the, the collaborating approach for the therapist is not to lead or direct, but more to ask what does the person want to change, share information, maybe like, and I, I like that they don't go, if you take it too far, you wouldn't be able to share information, right? It'd be like, that would be colonizing them or something or pressing them in a certain direction. But you do it respectfully. You say, well, you know, this is what I've heard about, uh, let's say somebody has a problem with alcohol mm-hmm. and you could talk, have you heard about the concept of denial? Mm-hmm. So if the person seems to be stuck in what we call this concept of, of, of denial where they're minimizing the problem, mm-hmm. then it's okay for the therapist to bring that up respectfully and say what do you think about that is it possible that you're experiencing some mm-hmm. denial so it's more like it becomes part of the conversation in equals sharing information and you're providing something to the story the narrative yeah. but you're not pushing it on the person right you're not saying yeah. i know better than you like you're in denial do you uh do you often have clients that will come to you with one issue let's just say it's yeah, whatever problems dealing with their their spouse, and then you see something like alcoholism or or like this, whatever trait it may be. I, you, I'm sure you have a better example, but something that's just glaringly obvious, and you are trying to shape them into maybe talking about that or considering that, and it's it's difficult. If they're if they're kind of on a narrative where they they believe this is their problem and they don't want to acknowledge that, is that common? Yeah, and, and that, that's interesting because there is some kind of roots to, you know, or common themes that come up. And one of the, the common themes, I think, is if you looked at it as a personal growth issue, that people, I would say, like a continuum 
where people say that the problem that they're having is outside of them, in the environment. So it's mm-hmm. about the people they're working with or their partner or the society they're in or, uh, you know, the kind of government. The problem is outside of them. So they, mm-hmm. they're, they're struggling with uh, reacting to people's behavior. And then as people go towards more, I think, awareness uh, to what works, if you want to put it that way, efficacy, they start to realize that it's much better to work on your reaction to people than trying to really change people outside of you. (laughs) So if you have the difficult person at work, you get more effective by how do I handle that person rather than going home being really angry, stressed, Mm -hmm. fearful, even you know, if you're right, even if that person is horrible and should change, it's a lot easier to change your reaction to them. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that's a challenge. You don't want to say to people, oh, you know, come on, the guy's difficult. Or, you know, like, why don't you just, you know, because people won't feel validated on how stressed they are by this event or person or whatever. But when they get to being in more effective uh, approaches, they're working on their reaction their feelings like why do i get angry around that person what am i experiencing that leads to anger mm-hmm. you know or why am i so sad about the loss of this relationship so you know people that say going through a breakup they might talk a lot about their partner and how they mistreated them uh you know they feel left by that partner and they talk about how they were selfish or anything. but in the end they come back to what, you know, how they felt and how they're going to grieve the loss and how they're going to maybe forgive that person. And then they come to some kind of closure. Uh, hmm. So it, that's the pattern you see a lot. People come in, they're really reactive to other people. And your challenge as a therapist, how to find a way for them to, to work on the area they can work on, right? They can't change the person who's not there. So the only area that is effective is their own response to that person. And so yeah. that's the kind of the challenge. How do you ask questions of somebody respectfully and to move towards, I guess you would call it a personal agency, you know, the ability to act to solve a problem without sounding like you're not listening to what they are defining as the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That That is kind of like the, the ultimate challenge, right? Because you don't want to not listen to their story. But if you think their story is is just going to go nowhere, like they're in a rage and they're really angry at all the drivers in the city. Mm-hmm. And they're just furious all the time about how people drive. You know that they're probably not going to resolve that issue because people are going to continue to drive right. the way they do. But So if you that's don't... truly making them unavoidably unhappy... It's a pretty hopeless situation. Well, the challenge is the therapist to sort of hear that, but then find a way to see if you can underline, you know, their reaction to bad drivers. Like you could say, I noticed that you're really getting angry about these bad drivers. Does that, you know, do you feel, are you concerned about your anger? Is it stressful? Yeah. Which is a respectful way of putting it. I mean, you got to be careful. You're not sounding like it's stating the obvious too much, mm-hmm. right? You know, like you banged your head against the wall five times. Did that help at all? You know, yeah. you don't want to. <laughs> but 
you do maybe want to shift the story over to something that they might be able to resolve. Mm-hmm. So in narrative, they sometimes they call the exception, you know, so you had these really difficult days, you know, you've really been angry at drivers and everything. What, what about the day you didn't get angry? What, what did you do on that day? Mm. So then you would help them sort of break down their behavior, their uh, thoughts, and how it, that day was a success. And then they might come to the conclusion it was the day that they stopped thinking about drivers, bad drivers. Yeah. And you didn't have to say it. Because if mm-hmm. you say it, you may get into an argument or you may be invalidating their experience. But you also get a sense that their anger and frustration is you're not going to be helpful if all you do is listen to their anger and frustration. Yeah. And say, oh, my God, you know, which is funny because it brings us back. We we're talking about the Rogerian approach where they would listen to the feelings all the time, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't question them at all. But I do wonder if it was, it could be really effective if the person finally got to a solution on their own. Which may be slower than narrative therapy. Narrative is, I think, finding a way to help the person solve the problem by asking more about um, what is effective, what isn't effective. And there's a lot of overlap. I'm really interested in Buddhism, uh, Buddhist psychology maybe Western Buddhist psychology is what I've read of more, but they, their term they would use the Buddhists is, this, is it skillful? So they okay. might say to somebody, you know, they use the term skillful instead of helpful, but it's the same idea. So like, ah, uh, so you're, you're really angry at drivers in the city. Is it helping or is it skillful to be angry? Is it resolving the problem of the drivers? Right. Now yeah. you'd have to ask in such a way where you're not, patronizing mm-hmm. but you want to say is that a skillful way to solve this problem mm-hmm. and that's the way to kind of look at it and i think you know there's a contradiction there or there's a comparison between i was brought up catholic and i, and I went until i was about 13 i stopped going to church and stuff but in the in the catholic or religious viewpoint a lot it, it's good and bad right it's not it's like if you've done something it's either good or wholesome or or, or you know or it's a sin, it's bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas narrative therapy and, and Buddhist uh, thinking is more about, is it working? Is it effective? You know, let, let's not get into good, bad, but, you know, is getting really angry at your son helping him? Mm-hmm. Oh, now, the, a, a religious view might be, it's a sin to yell at your kids. Then it becomes, well, you know, in what, what, you know, it's very complex. What is a sin? So it's more like, is it helping your kid to yell at them? Does it help you? Do you feel better about anything? Or is it, you know, and then it's more like getting away from the morality, you know, emphasis on it, which makes people feel either judged or, you know, getting into the good, bad paradigm, which Mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be very helpful. Okay. So does Buddhism and encourage this type of thought introspectively or is it led by a more senior practitioner that's a great question i think buddha if you look at the buddhist thing like even one of the the comments i mean attributed to the buddha is you know be a light unto thyself so that you know instead of following the buddha the buddha really said don't follow me like figure it out yourself try it out Right, Go out okay. in the world and try things, and if they make you feel bad, maybe they're not very effective. You know, if they make you feel fulfilled and you have good energy and you feel 
uh, calmer or at peace, your mind feels quieter, then maybe that works. So yeah. they would often say, don't just go and follow some person who says they understand how the world works. Yeah, the guru worshiping kind of thing. Yeah. I think there's a book that's called If You See the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, that idea that you don't want to follow the person who's supposed to be the guru. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I don't think Buddhists are saying you can't, they do have what they talk, Dharma talks, where you go and you listen to the to wisdom that somebody's sharing with you. And But it's still up to you whether you take it on or whether you ignore mm-hmm. it. So it's not as prescriptive, as prescriptive as like a more classic Western ideology. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And uh, do you, do you believe like one thing I've heard that people kind of have like baseline levels of anxiety and depression that if you're going about your life and you're very anxious about your, maybe your job is on the rocks. As soon as that situation resolves itself or you resolve it, you'll just kind of do a bit of a switch and now you'll be really stressed out about the renovations that you have to do and you'll complete your renovations and now it'll just switch to your, your dog is sick or, you know, people just kind of have this, this baseline level um, would, would you see that as like an, I don't know if that's an aspect of personality, but how much, like once you're above say like a teenager, how fluid are these personality traits or whatever? I, I don't even know the term to use, but anxiety and depression. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, I mean, that's a great question to get right to the center of, uh, uh, what, you know, we know about psychology over the mind and stuff that I think people, it's a good distinction to make. And I think generally accepted in the field is that there's both a biological part of, of problems like mental health problems and maybe, you know, you call it a psychological. So the biological being that we are, you know, the term maybe predisposed to a certain amount of anxiety. So in, let's say a person is born with a tendency to worry or be anxious uh, and it might be on a continuum. Some people very low. If there's no anxiety, sometimes they think it's and that it's so unusual that it might be, you know, more a sociopathic thing because mm-hmm. you don't have any fears or worries about stuff. Yeah. And then you know somewhere where moderate anxiety, fear, doubts, you know, and then excessive where the the mind is constantly questioning, looking for things that could go wrong, feeling in, insecure. And, well, I mean, that leads to, like, why do we have that, which is partly my, my, my favorite topic right now, which is sort of like uh, uh, evolution and the brain and yeah. this stuff. But before we go there, I just want your question about, so I think everybody has some predisposition for a level of things that would be helpful or unhelpful. So some people might be predisposed to be somewhat depressed. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's hard because we use the same word so what is the word depressed you could say literally the person is is low in energy mm-hmm. and that would be you could call it maybe a biological thing but if we say somebody's depressed they have the depressed thoughts so they think negative thoughts or they feel like there's not hope for the future that might lead to low energy yeah. and so it's one of these chicken and egg things all the time right in which mm-hmm. you know come up so many issues come around with these circles chicken and egg so is the person 
feeling down and, and negative and that leads to difficulties in their behavior or do they start thinking negative things and then their body kind of goes downhill and they don't have energy and they don't want to get out of bed yeah maybe both you know so some people let's say they get in they come into the world and they have a really good uh, constitution so they don't worry that much their mood is generally positive or they're not you know not not troubled by things but then experiences happen uh in their life events occur environmental you know things happen in a sense that make them feel pessimistic hopeless about the future don't believe that things could get better and then they start showing the signs of lots of anxiety and depression mm -hmm. whereas the next person might have a predisposition to quite a bit of anxiety or depression but work through it by noticing how their mind works so you know everybody uses the term more and more these days mindfulness so they might notice hmm i worry a lot so that might be like the brain is trying to worry it's it's making us worry it's wanting to be i guess a good term vigilant hyper vigilant to possible mm -hmm. things that could go wrong and then we like you were saying then you just fit into it oh like oh my god maybe i won't get to work on time and then oh my god at work i'm worried that the boss is doesn't like me anymore and then you know, like whatever there is to worry about, they will slot in the things that are in front of them. But yep. when they start to notice they do that, then they can say, well, I'm, what do I, why do I worry so much? Like, is it working for me? And back to kind of what we talked about, is it effective? Do, do I want to worry so much? And then they might choose to not go to worrying. And then, you know, this is a very hopeful thing that call uh, neuroplasticity, that the brain will change. So... You start noticing that you worry a lot, but then you practice not worrying and not, you know, ruminating about stuff that could go wrong. And you do something else. Let's say you start to worry and you say, no, I'm worrying. I'm going to just listen to the music and drive to work. I'm not going to think about all the and things that could go And it's a significant wrong. amount of people that go through therapy or self-reflection that can actually make these changes. Well, I think we're all in the same boat, really. Like yeah. we all could... You know, if we start to notice that we have patterns like of worrying or negative thinking, you know, feeling hopeless about stuff, then we can own it, see it, not blame ourselves for it, and then start to think, well, I don't want to worry so much, and then find a way not to worry. And then the brain actually changes. It's like mm -hmm. the circuits are all in there, right? you know, just like how a computer might be all have all these circuits or, or you know, like, you know, neuron connections between different parts of the brain. And the one that goes to the fear part, which is, you know, the, the old brain, kind of the reptilian brain, where all the fear is, it starts not going there because you refuse or you choose not to go towards fear. And then it, it won't be so hard after you do it because you create a new pathway. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a real, when that, people started talking about that was like a really good step in the direction of, hopefulness that we're not just stuck in these bodies and brains and that we were predisposed to be a certain kind of person we can actually rewire our brain and in a sense you could say change your personality right i mean yeah. if we think of personality as tendencies of behavior a real worrier well maybe we started as a worrier but we actually rewired our brain and in the end we might be calmer than you know the average much calmer than the average person how did we do that through this practice of mindfulness that 
leads to actual material changes in the brain. Yeah. Well, that's interesting to hear you say that because I have heard that, you know, put forth before that thing, these, these traits are stable, but it doesn't coincide with my own experience. Like I don't, I've found that certainly there's times in my life where I felt more stressed and less stressed. I mean, there's everybody has mm-hmm. stress all the time, but, but it didn't, yeah, it didn't match my experience. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's interesting. To, yeah, it's to hopeful hear. that we can yeah. make changes and not feel stuck, you know, get stuck in our identity. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned something. I mean, what, my favorite topic these days is the idea of the old brain. Have you heard that? I have. Yeah. 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 And then people use like reptilian brain or, um, you know, the, the, anyways, the way I've heard the triune brain, there's three main, I'm not really, you know, a, a neuroscientist in any way, what I picked up on. And I usually is more the practice of people trying to change their their feelings and their behaviors but i've this idea that the the triune there's like the old brain and the reptilian brain as it evolved it became more complex emotionally mm-hmm. and then it then the frontal lobes developed and, and evolved and there's so this you could just say that i it seems to me one of the biggest problems that we have as humans is the interface between the old brain and the frontal lobe mm. the frontal lobe can like analyze things make you know question you know risk you know is there risk here okay i want to do this behavior like i want to jump out of a plane with yeah. a parachute on mm-hmm. whereas the old brain would say no way yeah, yeah <laughs> right you're having to fight your body exactly i guess you're not fighting your body you're fighting your brain because yeah. your brain is your body's only responding to your different parts of your brain yeah and somehow we override it like your old brain even i'm sure i've never jumped out of a plane i would like to but i, I just haven't i have spent, it was tricky have, oh, yeah. yeah yeah so yeah, you must know that you must when you went to jump that first time was your was your heart pounding and your brain was sort of telling you don't do that yeah for sure um i so i do a lot of these extreme sports what people would call extreme sports um but I've never been that interested in bungee jumping and skydiving, but both of them I've done through a bit of a coincidence. I used to work at a resort that had a bungee jump tower, so we could just do it whenever we wanted to. So I felt obligated to do it a few times. And then my friend went bungee jumping or skydiving for his birthday. So we, but I found bungee jumping a lot scarier than skydiving. And now they're, you're attached to a, another person when you're skydiving. So I guess you have that oh, right. support. I don't think that influenced me. What I think it goes back to the old brain, what you were talking about with skydiving. It was, it was like an abstraction. Like we're so high up. I don't think my old brain even okay. really recognized <laughs> the scenario right. that I was in because it's so unfamiliar. Okay. Whereas bungee jumping, I was 150 feet above the ground. <laughs> I've been on cliffs that high. And like, it's just a, it's a familiar setting, right. which I know I've come close to dying, you know, before like that. And then right. to hurl yourself off of that and with a string attached to yourself, <laughs> like it just seems so stupid. And so you, in that case, is. I'm at, your old brain knows that this is dangerous. And, and you yeah. know, and actually they prove that in psychology that we're born with an, an awareness that heights are, are dangerous so they they mm-hmm. it was like a classic study where they take an infant and they had it on a glass table but it won't crawl over the edge because it yeah. can see the drop off it's not taught yeah. so it already it's inherent in the old brain to avoid 
falling off things. Yeah, so, so the old pre, brain precognition. Yeah, yeah, it's built in like an instinct, don't you know, to be mm-hmm. fearful. So fear, in a sense, evolved to protect us. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you look at the old brain, it's full of fear, right? And and yeah. what I've really noticed is working with people, fear is the main issue, the main problem. Okay. We, it turns into so many other emotions that we find troubling. But it is sort of a created by the old brain, supposedly, I suppose, in time, you know, in millions of years of evolution, it evolved to protect us. And, you mm-hmm. know, so anything that was threatening to us, we would have fear would be created, which was like a chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. It's just a chemical reaction occurring in the brain to try and make us not do the thing, avoid the thing, yeah, whatever it might be. yeah, And yet... So when you've got this fear comes up and then we avoid things and then we try other responses when we're afraid, like anger, mm-hmm. which was another thing that was selected for by the brain to try and solve the problem of, of being attacked or whatever. So you're at threat, anger yeah. kicks in. It's almost and, like fear plus adrenaline yeah, plus determination equals anger or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah, It's like fear mm-hmm. is the the base emotion that is created by the old brain and and then various other emotions kind of come from that uh like you know we're afraid to be alone so we experience because when if you were alone you might die so if Mm -hmm. you're if you're going to be in a in a group and you're cut off from the group you're going to die so if you felt you're alone and you feel fear then you would go back to the group Mm mm-hmm but and you know another feeling that so like, might, like loneliness would be a type of fear. Yeah, well, in a, in a sense, maybe it's another feeling that was developed by the brain to make you join the group. Yeah. So that I was like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable on my own, and we say it's loneliness as if it has this complex thing, but it, we could reduce it to a kind of a chemical thing that's occurring that makes us feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and I guess where it gets complex too is that the old brain and the, our cognition they they interface and so you maybe if you're separated from a group it would make sense that you have a loneliness reaction immediately but then you could also be with an abusive partner for example mm-hmm. and not be left alone but cognitively understand that if i were to make decision xyz i would be alone and then that fear from the old brain could kick in based not on a real stimulus but based on a you know, a simulation you've run in your cognition. Right. Yeah. I mean, why do people do certain things? Like you're saying, like if you went, if you're in an abusive relationship, if you leave, you may, your old brain may feel like you're going to be cut off from connection, but you also may be cut off from sustenance or whatever. If you're, you know, you're going to have to be out on your own. Mm -hmm. So there's fears make people do things that are maybe like counterproductive Certainly as humans now, animals, you know, a lot of it was just like automatic. So you go out of your little, let's say you're a reptile and you go out of your little cave and some rocks come down a hill and they cover you and you're almost killed. Your brain will remember everything about that experience, like mm-hmm. the sunlight, where it was, uh, where, where, where you were in relation to your cave and it will remember it perfectly yeah. so that you stay away from that area mm-hmm. and avoidance of that area. Unfortunately for humans now, we get traumatic things happening all the time, like like an abusive relationship or like a loss of a job or somebody 
uh, you know, loss of relationship, you know, breakdowns of the, and then we, although primitive human beings would probably have the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we have much more complex experiences of it, but the brain might tell you stay away, you know, so stay, don't ever go into a relationship again because it was so painful. Hmm. And yet that would be, if we generalize and say, don't go to a relationship, then we would avoid, uh, you know, other positive things that might happen through us through connection. He's like, one of the things I've thought about before is like how amazingly complex the human brain is. And it's almost, you'd think about it if, if you believe in, if one believes in evolution, how you adapt to do what's necessary to survive. The brain, the power of the human brain seems unnecessary. But I, my thought is that mm. like in the modern world, there's a lot of complexity with technology, but in any job, no matter how complex it is, often the most, like if you talk to Elon Musk, is it, I wonder if the most complex things he deals with is all these inventions or trying to manage all the people and conflicting interests <laughs> in this, in these companies. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I could guess at it. I bet you it's not coming up with the ideas. It's trying to get people to do it and to buy in and to work and, mm-hmm. and his personal relationships. So I would imagine it's like a primitive society Their their social networks would be just as complex and that the human brain kind of maybe evolved to to deal with that situation and survive in that because i mean there's a lot more successful hunting species that more successful than us um that are a lot stupider than us (laughs) well i guess you might say what is stupid though right not true i mean if we were in that society hunters gatherers and with with the extreme lack of knowledge that we have on how mm-hmm. to do that we might look really stupid yeah we wouldn't know yeah, how to yeah. get you know get an animal or get <laughs> you know make, do the kill or survive in the mm-hmm. but, but you know I, a good point you're saying in the sense i mean i want our brains evolved uh, and our bodies evolved for you know millions of years i'm not sure how many exact years i always forget how many years we've actually been on the planet but uh and only in the last few hundred years have we changed so radically. Mm-hmm. So, or a few thousand years, let's say. Before that, we were hunters and gatherers. And for many, you know. For many, but we had the same cognitive capacity, essentially identical, right? I, you know, I think we that's evolved somewhat. But it's, we, uh, you know, they think that we developed the frontal lobes because it was good for imagining things like it gave you an advantage like in a hunt because you could imagine what it would, hap- would happen. Mm. So a lot of things were for basic survival things like to deal with, uh, become a better hunter, to be successful, to survive and procreate. That's the whole thing with evolution. Yeah. If you can survive it, you, to procreate, you will pass those genes on. Mm. And then so that, that kind of behavior. You know, that but kind you of- also, in a, in, you have to survive and procreate and perhaps procreation was the more like neurologically taxing thing in you know what i mean way, like in what way it's a- well like uh if it might actually be trivial to conduct a hunt and get enough food to survive but to manage all the relationships within <laughs> your tribe and to attract a mate who maybe is predisposed to like more attractive males like if that was sexually selected for mm-hmm. um i've heard that theory before um, that the brain could actually, like the human brain could be from a sexual adaptation pressure, not um, like a natural selection adaptation pressure, if that makes any sense. 
Well, my understanding is that, you know, basically natural selection is that anything that will lead you to pass your genes on will be selected because yeah. it's almost like a logic so it didn't that encompass both yeah, yeah. It, it, it can you know it's a logic that is almost infallible because if you if the body and the brain evolved that way it must have been effective mm-hmm. and so whatever you know with alterations or you know uh, along the way anything that slightly gives you an advantage to procreate mm-hmm. successfully will then be passed on so uh, as you're saying, you know, we start maybe like food and, and shelter, and all, but then the complexity of relationships, who gets to procreate mm-hmm. <laughs> and what is, what is considered attractive, you know, and so like this in sociobiology, one of the things that say that people like men might be attracted to hips. Now we think that's because it's aesthetically pleasing, but actually bigger hips means a more effective childbirth. Mm-hmm. Right, so we we tend to think we like that for some aesthetic reason. It's just beauty, when it's actually based on just that. If you chose that, mm-hmm. that gene will be passed on for the one that made you choose the hips. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a very weird logic. But what I've noticed in therapy, you know, just to bring it back to therapy, is that mm-hmm. the old brain is. We all have an old brain. We carry it around with us. It's not. It's not very smart in the sense that it doesn't have language. It's pre-verbal. Okay. So it, you can't speak to your old brain. So it has fear and you can't talk to it. You can't, like in, as we're talking now, the old brain is just sitting here looking for things to go wrong, right? It doesn't right. understand yeah. language. Although we can communicate to it, I think, more through, you know, exp, you know, sort of that we say, uh-oh, there's something dangerous happening, which circuits might go to the old brain, get it fired up. But it's sitting there and it has all this fear. And you, if you can't speak to it and you can't change it that way, then you have to show it that things are not dangerous. Okay. You have to actually bring the old brain yourself to, to do things that you know, it's saying, don't do. And then when you do it, that you override it with your frontal lobe. Eventually, it calms down and yeah. says, "Oh, I guess I can do that." And we do that with a lot. We're not, you know, we, we instinctually don't like water, heights, fire, small spaces, insects, all these things. But mm-hmm. we choose to go towards them. And if you choose with uh, commitment, like, "No, I want to go swimming," mm-hmm. and you do it a few times, your your frontal lobe can override the old brain very quickly mm-hmm. if you're determined. Because yeah. it doesn't understand it, and when you choose to do it anyways, it it goes. There's some kind of a mechanism that says, "Okay, okay let's take that off the list of things to avoid." Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a powerful thing to be able to override something like that in your life. I always I always respect somebody that's facing their fears that way. Like one of my favorite things, my one of my jobs in university before I got in the military was a, a raft guide. Right, and my we had this like twenty foot cliff that jumped into not a rapid but like some quickly moving deep water. Right, and it was terrifying for some people, and of course some people just like jump up, do flips, and that. Right. But one of my favorite things is seeing getting some like middle aged woman up there who's never done anything like that, and their knees are almost buckling, and they're standing there shaking and convincing them to actually like eh, like jump off or. Often, if you go with them, they'll they'll like they'll 
people will do that more often. If, if you can't convince them to go by themselves, if you're like, I'll hold your hand and we'll go together, they'll do that. Um, so people are, like you're saying, they're willing to do it. On some re- they're really going against sort of the nature of their old brain, which is trying to tell them to avoid it. But yeah. on some deeper level, they kind of know that they don't want to listen to that, right? Yeah, they know. They definitely want to do it because they've stood in line. Like I would never, like if somebody wasn't standing in line, to jump off the cliff i would never go pull them out of the you know the some, some you know hangout area and say <laughs> yeah. like you're getting up there and we're jumping but mm-hmm. somebody if they've stood in line and they've waited because there might be a hundred people on this trip and they've waited five minutes to get to the edge of the cliff i i generally put a lot of pressure on these people to like oh let's do it come on you're not going to turn around and once in a while you'd lose out and somebody would turn around but almost every time you'd be able to coerce this person and in a lot of social um I don't know about social pressure, but social support. Like people right. would clap and cheer them on. And it was like a, it was a supportive environment as you get when you're with a hundred strangers, you know? So they, yeah. And I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, that's very similar in a way to therapy because, you know, they, they know on some deeper level or so, there are some awareness that if I can do this, I will have, I won't have this fear anymore. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be contrary to what the old brain is telling them, though. The old brain is saying, don't do this. And yet they're overriding that, and you're encouraging them. But they have consented, in a sense, to your encouragement for choosing to do this. Mm -hmm. They know that your goal is to support them to do the thing they wanted to do. So you're not really, as you said, they were coercing, but you're not really because you're encouraging and you're trying to speak to their frontal lobe which is saying, I want to do this. And they've got all this evidence in their new brain or cognitive yeah. brain because they've, generally these people don't rush to the front of the line, right? They <laughs> they kind of meander and mill about until the line fills up and everybody goes and they kind of get in the back of the line. So by the time they're standing at the edge of the cliff, they've seen 60, 70 people jump off of it before them right. and all of them swim to shore with smiles on their faces. So, so they have all the evidence and all the data in front of them they need that they're going to be totally safe and but yeah, they do have to override that that system. And you know, we we all know that in some level, like it's part of our culture. You know, the expression, you know, uh, if you get thrown off a horse, get back on the saddle. We know mm-hmm. that if you got thrown off a horse, there's a risk that you would turn away from riding again, and that that would settle in, and you'd never ride again. But people who, who ride love it so much that they that it became a kind of a saying. Yeah. get back on the horse mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. once you do that you are using your frontal lobe to override fear and it works and it, and and that's what's you know so exciting about it in some ways is that if you see fear as in a sense and a delusion because mm-hmm. fear is never in a sense it's not it's warning you against something mm-hmm. that isn't happening now like you know if you're being chased by a bear even Fear is telling you something terrible is going to happen when it gets to you. Yeah. Yeah. When you're being mauled by a bear, you probably aren't feeling fear. It's a different different set of emotions. Yeah. And if you're running away from a beer, a beer, (laughs) I don't run away from bears. I'm attracted to them. No, but if you're running away from a bear, you know that you don't want the bear, it could hurt you. So you yeah. don't need to be reminded yeah, yeah, of it yeah, yeah. the whole time. Yeah, you don't need a debate with that part of your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you don't need any further 
you know, like adrenaline. I mean, you do might need adrenaline. And luckily, we can have adrenaline like athletes can have without fear. So they can be in like a heightened state, but not have the fear part. Mm -hmm. uh, so, But I think we, you know, sometimes we think we need fear to keep us safe. So the funny contradiction in therapy is that you can ask people, what would happen if you worried less? And you can okay. see that they're not absolutely sure they want to worry less. Hmm. You know, and you can tell often people's eyes will go up to the left and kind of look up. And they're like thinking, you know, no, if I didn't have fear, I'd be vulnerable to some terrible things. Mm -hmm. But I think that is what makes people hang on to fear. Like they, they, they won't, they don't want to turn away from it. And they do think, I think we all think that somehow without fear, we would forget, you know, not to drive too fast or we would forget to pay our bills, and, we, and which I don't think makes a lot of sense. No, we, you know, we we the frontal lobe is really good. Those at, are at, cognitive at, tasks. Yeah, yeah, and the frontal lobe is very good at assessing risk. Mm -hmm. right? And if we listen to the old brain, we wouldn't even want to get in a car because it'd be like, don't yeah. do this. And the old brain doesn't understand statistics, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you talk about how many measures we put against child abductions for strangers, whereas like that just really doesn't happen these all these child abductions are from yeah. close family members and all that like but the old brain doesn't understand that right the old brain from you know what you've said and from what mm -hmm. i understand about um the little i understand about psychology is it it doesn't process statistics it just yeah. sees a risk and you know there's no if there's no immediate reward um it just wants to avoid the risk right mm -hmm. and and we know that if you you face as you were saying face fear you get over it and you know when i was working i've been working a lot with people who have ptsd mm -hmm. and i was also working with teenagers who had anxiety problems and the common thing i started to notice is that people had a, a funny relationship with anxiety in one way if they had let's say anxiety they won't go to school so they're not going to, a teenager is not going to go to school because they've had some bad experiences. They're very anxious. Mm -hmm. But if you said to them, you know, would you like to get over your anxiety? Then they might think, well, then I'd be at school. Yeah. And, but when you say, no, 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 I didn't say you had to go back to school. I said, well, would you like to get over your anxiety about school? There's some kind of funny logic thing. Like, for instance, I always tell this story to my clients. I have my, my niece, who was like maybe 13 or 14 at the time. She's one of those people, you've probably seen them, you know, are really afraid of wasps. Okay. So she's, you know, we're walking down the street or something. A wasp comes near and she's, you know, that thing where people just go, ah, you know, they just curl up and they're like, ah, and they look like, oh my God, you're really terrified right now. Yeah. So I asked her later. I said, hey, would you, would you like to get over that fear of wasps? And she said, no. Yeah. And I just, bing, right? Oh, right. We think fear is keeping us safer. But actually, it's creating all sorts of trouble in our life. Like yeah. We're hanging on to fear as if that it's behavior, protecting us. Crouching up like that is not more effective defense no. against wasps. Yeah. And I suppose the old brain's logic is maybe... If you stay in the house for the rest of your life, you're going to have less likelihood of being stung, mm -hmm. which might be 1% better mm -hmm. than going outside. But this, the loss of not being able to go outside yeah. is much greater. 
But I, so I noticed that with PTSD and anxiety, people have a funny unconscious relationship sometimes of wanting not to let go of, of the distress and anxiety because then they'll have to face whatever they were traumatized by. Hmm. So there's a funny thing about that. The only way they seem to be effective at doing it is when they want to. Okay. And that's the tricky part. So, and I was noticing that with teenagers a lot. And I would say, you know, what would you like? You know, the narrative view, what would you like? I'd like to stay home. Okay. Okay. And, and I'd like my parents to stop bothering me about school. Okay. So that, and then, and then what? And then, you know, if you really listen to them and, and see if you can set up what they want and you can, then they say, like, I remember this kid, I said, okay, now you're at home. Now you're living in actually a trailer outside in the front, on front driveway. Mm-hmm. Your parents aren't bugging you anymore. You're not having to go to school. So, you know, things have gone. This is all want. hypothetical. Yeah. Well, this was actually happening. Oh, this, this person. has happened. Okay. Yeah. This yeah. is a real person. I won't mention their name, of course. But, but I mean, in, are this scenario where they're living in a trailer, is that has that actually been set up for them? Or are you going through this as an exercise? No, sorry. Yeah, they did have a trailer in their driveway and they oh, were wow. living there. And that, that was better than being in the house because there was so much tension about them not going to school. Mm-hmm. And so they got what they wanted. But then I said, so, so what now? And they said, well... I don't, I mean, I'm not going to live in a, at home for the rest of my life. Yeah. So it was so interesting that the story, they got what they wanted to avoid all the anxiety, but they, when it really came down, they realized that wasn't going to solve the underlying problem. So mm-hmm. then they chose to try and overcome some of these debilitating fears. Mm-hmm. But when people try and push you towards it, the old brain kicks in and, and it says, no way am I going to school or am I going back to work or am I going like it really kicks in when you're being pressured to go towards the thing that fear you're fearful of. Hmm. So for, and you mentioned PTSD as well. What is the, what is often like the underlying trigger for PTSD or air anxiety? Like how do these, how do these things generally begin manifesting? Well, I, there's a good story that fits with this because, and what we're just talking about too, because actually, you know, a lot of times like say, so PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, some trauma in your life, like, you know, the obvious one is something like war, mm-hmm. but it could be a car accident. It could be a breakup even. Mm-hmm. It could be um, an illness, a severe yeah. illness. Your brain, your old brain records that as a very traumatic event and will do everything it can to protect you from doing that again. So it will make you, in a sense, avoid Everything to do with what you experience. So if it was a car accident, you won't want to get in a car. It'll record the sounds of the street, the, the street lights and everything will all be triggers for you. Mm. And your old brain will say, bingo, this is the dangerous area. Yeah. And then it'll say, don't go do it. But then, of course, if you can't get in a car again, you've got mm. this other problem and your life gets smaller and smaller. So that, like, how do you overcome that kind of your brain wanting to avoid things. So what do you think of uh, when people talk about, say, triggering? Like, I've heard that word before. Like, that's triggering to me. Yeah. You know, if you look at your the model you've kind of put about exposure, like small exposures or greater exposures to mm-hmm. what you are fearing being kind of the antidote to that, do you think this is actually maladaptive to protect people and put trigger warnings on everything to kind of, wouldn't that actually increase their anxiety or... 
make them more reclusive if they were afraid of these triggers. Like, sorry, what you're saying, like a warning, like I heard they put warnings on, uh, what are those things that people are really big on eating these days on toast? Um, I, they, they, I, I can't remember the pet. And they cut them up and and they put them on toast. But they're, I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the name of the vegetable. But oh, avocado. Avocado. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, in England, I heard that they put a warning sign on it because people cut them open with a knife. And they yeah. often cut their fingers. And stuff. So it says right on them, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Avocados are dangerous. But that's what you mean, like all these warning signs out there. Well, and just like, uh, I guess uh, I'm I'm thinking kind of for for somebody that had, say, like, issues with their race or their sex or a better the best example would be a say a woman who's been raped mm -hmm. there might be like triggers to that experience could be like a strong male presence or mm -hmm. some sort of aggression or or talks about sexual violence or whatever mm -hmm. it would be so you are to prevent that person from being emotionally aroused or triggered and and ultimately scared and want to leave whatever space you're in try to protect that person but in protecting them you might actually be stifling their growth by creating this environment where they're never exposed to those things and they never have a chance to actually slowly reintegrate into mm -hmm. like a normal human experience mm -hmm. yeah i, I mean i, I agree it, it could be it can get counter like help protecting children from fears or things that are troubling them can count, you know, counterproductive. Like, cause you know, the over, when we talk about overprotecting and then the, they don't go towards the thing that, you know, yeah. and, and so it is a weird thing. Of course we want to avoid bad experiences. We want to avoid real danger. We want to, we don't want to do things that are too risky. Yeah. Some people want to, you know, they're, <laughs> they might take like high risk. They might actually, you know, they know they could get hurt. Not most people don't want to do that if they know they're going to get hurt. But we want to be able to be free of false, you know, um, worries or fears yeah. that are unfounded. But I, and so it is true that, like you were saying, in, in therapy, most the one of the like really proven approach to fear anxiety is the exposure idea. That if you're afraid of spiders, you know, you might talk, look at pictures of spiders first, and then maybe a fake spider. And then be in a room where there's a spider and eventually get up to picking up the spider. Mm -hmm. And then you get over it. So they call it a progressive desensitization. Although yeah. I guess the thing with that is the willingness, the patient is willingly going into that, not being pulled into that by an external force. That is the key thing. Mm -hmm. you, you nailed it there. That's what I've noticed. And that's what I, in my practice, I focus on that idea that people have to decide to go towards it themselves. Mm -hmm. So I was noticing that with teenagers who really don't, they just decide no way. I'm not going to go to school. I'm not going to. And then you can't really discuss it with them because you, they, they might think you're just trying to push them to go back. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to, so you have to find a way for them to make a decision themselves about whether they want to get over the fear. And, and it, when I was doing that kind of work, I came across this study which really affirmed that it was a study done in England and they had all these uh, military people who had been over in Afghanistan or something and they had had PTSD. So they're very sensitive to like sounds like cars backfiring, mm -hmm. uh, you know, any sirens. 
they're reliving a lot of these things. They can't watch TV if they see violence. It all comes back. And mm-hmm. but they wanted to get over this this the symptoms of PTSD. All you know, the anxiety, this constant anxiety in their life. You know, they often get really reactive to people, angry, lots of anxiety. So they want to get over it. So they went and volunteered for this study that, that was offered. And in the study, what they did is they asked people to choose videos of things that would be really traumatizing for them, like the back streets of Afghanistan or, you know, pictures of a tank or sound, it sounds too. So like the sounds of, you know, gunfires. And then they, they tell them, I don't, I, in the study where I read the study, it doesn't say exactly how they inform them, but they basically say, this is what we're going to ask you to do. If you go towards these things, then they won't be triggers anymore. Yeah. And they, they convince them. But, you know, one thing, as you mentioned already, they want to do it. Yeah. That's a key thing. They want to do it. So they're like, sure, bring it on. I want to do the thing that will make me better. So they have a rationalization and they're, they're being encouraged that, yes, you can get over this. So they get the videos together. The person chooses themselves, I think. So they're sort of like, this is triggering. This is triggering. So they're in control of the process too, right? So they're they're actually not feeling forced into it. They're choosing to be part of the process. And then they have the videos and the sounds and they get on a treadmill and they walk towards it, the videos. Oh, interesting. And yeah. I think the key part there, like we were talking about, is that the old brain doesn't have language. So it you can't talk to it. You have to show right, it. Right, so it wouldn't be helpful if you were sitting in a chair and pushing yourself into the back of the chair that could actually be encouraging exactly the old brain that this is something we need to slink away from and hide from and make ourselves small exactly you can if the person was still very terrified and you said hey we're going to play these videos it's going to be good for you you could re-traumatize them you know as they're like no what are you doing to me but if they're choosing it then their frontal lobe i picture the frontal lobe is overriding the old brain's automatic responses so they're looking at it and because the the treadmill makes the brain old brain understand the movement towards Mm -hmm. they're choosing it through walking not only if they just sat there and put it on they're actually physically walking and so the old brain recognize but it's obviously not very smart because (laughs) it doesn't understand that it's not the real thing and you're on a treadmill yeah yeah it just thinks oh we're moving towards a thing so this must be okay or you know it uh, luckily for evolution not luckily the evolution works that way if you couldn't override your old brain it would be it wouldn't be it's a good thing that you can override it sometimes yeah well what a perfect like uh i don't know analogy is not the right word but what a like a it's great like a layered kind of approach to that you're both physically and mentally moving towards or advancing towards something that you're terrified of yeah yeah and that is the message that evolution has allowed the old brain to be overridden is when there's choice and and personal agency i want to do this the Hmm. old brain somehow it evolved in such a way that okay that's a trigger to turn trigger i shouldn't say use trigger but it's a, a a step or a i guess a lever or lever lever is switched you know to say now the fear can be removed from the list of things I'm trying to avoid. Hmm. <coughs> I'm now I'm just going through all the things uh, 
we could get on the TV while I can get a treadmill and all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. Well, Very that's a good point. I, I, in my own life, when I'm looking at this whole old brain fear thing, I, I've kind of thought whenever I realize I have fear, that it'll be useful to go towards it. You know, if it's mm-hmm. a fear that I'm, you know, if you if you think you're going to go to a party, most people have some social anxiety that when they get to the party, something is going to be stressful. So they're kind of, part of them is avoiding it. But if you say, oh, no, this will be good. I want to go to the party to face that fear. Just the choice, conscious choice. No, yeah. and you say, I want to go, not I have to go or... Uh, right yeah and you yeah. say i'm gonna go and face that fear it will it works because you've overridden it by just making it very conscious that you want to go towards the thing that part of you is trying to get away from hmm. yeah so that that's that passage of information between like the physical world and the cognitive brain and the old brain mm-hmm. hmm. yeah yeah that's cool and that's like kind of the i mean you can talk a lot about free will but that's i mean and some people don't believe in free will, but that does seem to me like a demonstration of at least perception of free will over just like the drive of the base, the basic, you know, mm-hmm. old brain to survive and avoid fearful stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, was there like a, you notice a theme in say parenting that would lead to these high anxiety children? Mm, yeah, and family therapy is fascinating in itself. But, um, well, I mean, what I noticed a lot was that when there is an anxious child, let's say they're biologically predisposed to be anxious, um, and then the parent wants them to get over it. Mm-hmm. So the parent will try to get them to do things or they'll push them in the direction of facing their fears. But the, the old brain kicks in big time at that point. The old yeah. brain does not like to be forced into things, which is perfectly understandable, right? Yeah. Like you don't want to, we don't like to be held, you know, we'll panic, right? Like in animals, like if you hold an animal, it panics because that could be dangerous, right? You're being caught and yeah. you could be killed. Yeah. So we don't like that. And we don't like somebody sort of forcing us towards something. The old brain will experience that as very dangerous, so parents are anxious and fearful and they want their kids to do things and to get over problems, but they're trying to push them in that direction. And then the kid is a healthy response to resist them. Right. And so these, these kind of types of anxiety, could they be nipped in the bud earlier if the parents were actually not so insistent about them getting over these things? Or do you think like that is kind of a chicken and the egg type thing where there's a little bit of anxiety where somebody wants to miss school for a day and the parents put up that strong wall of no absolutely go back and then it it, that dynamic builds is that typically how it happens no i think that's a good description like if a person a child had a tendency to be anxious and wanted to avoid school and the parent was afraid that if they didn't go to school and communicated that fear and then didn't make it didn't listen to that possibility they might add to the fear right because the old brain would kick in thinking i'm being forced to do something which seems dangerous or uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and then the the child would be even more insistent not to be forced to do the thing 
I mean, it's tricky, I think, for parents because it doesn't mean they're going to say, oh, I don't want to go to school today, mom. And you're like, okay, you don't have to. Yeah. There's a point where they might, but if, you, if we have, you know, too much pushing and too much saying this is good for you mm-hmm. actually backfires. And I, I mean, we're kind of talk, talking about an, another topic, which I find fascinating, parenting, right? It, it mm-hmm. seems to have shifted a lot where we used to, the parents would tell everybody, you know, the parents were in charge and tell you how to live your life. And now it's kind of like a revolution from the bottom up. The kids watching cartoons and movies and all sorts of empowering sort of messages Mm -hmm. are saying, no, you can't tell me how to live my life. So the parents are using more, sometimes parents are using more of power tactics to overcome their kids, what they would call opposition or, you know, not being a good listener or being, hmm. you know, acting so you think delinquent. This opposition, like this, you know, opposition from the youth, is is that a healthy thing for society or do you think that's counterproductive? Well, that's, you know, I think, I think to me, there is kind of a paradigm shift is occurring from uh, that power over others. It might work well at times in the military or when you're trying to solve problems, you might have a hierarchical arrangement works best. But and there's a guy who wrote a book called Conscious Loving. Um, and he's, he states the obvious. He sort of says, why did we have to have power in families? Why is there a hierarchy? Mm-hmm. Why do we need that? Where did we get the idea that the parents are in charge and they should use power over their kids to you know sort of bring them up properly and he said it's like i never though he put it he puts it in such a good way that what are we trying to do we're trying to get our kids to be mature and cooperate and learn and take responsibility why do we need power to do that rather than collaboration and 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 you know kind of a time do the, you know the, some children want to be part of the family and they they're willing to do some things but then the parents we step in and we force them and we make it a big issue about power and control so then the kids take on you know like it's a power struggle mm-hmm. but i think the parents introduce the concept of power as the way to get people to grow up or to to mature yeah. And then they're upset that their kids are in a power struggle with them. Right. But they Even introduced they're the power ones that introduced as, it into the dynamic. Yeah. 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 Hmm. And now there seems to be a paradigm shift away from power as the way to influence people to shared understanding and collaboration. How do we get people who live in the same house to cooperate and to do share some of the work and to understand that parents have huge demands and they need help and they need some cooperation. Yeah. And there's actually a, I mean, you mentioned the military. There's a, that paradigm shift is happening in the military Even as well. In the military. Well, yes, yeah, certainly. Cause I mean, it, if power, power can, is a strange thing, right? Like you might have the illusion of power when you're in a large military organization that hasn't been deployed um, because, you know, somebody's job and, depending if you know depending if it's 1930 maybe they're the fact their next meal to, it depends on them still being in the military so you mm-hmm. have some power and influence over somebody but the second you're in the desert in um, Afghanistan with a crew of 12 people or a platoon of 30 guys or a better example is Vietnam with a like a 
remote operating platoon in the jungles of Vietnam. The platoon commander on paper has all the power over mm-hmm. his soldiers. He can command them into death. But there was a, I don't have the statistics on it, but there was a lot of platoon commanders executed by their own soldiers in the jungles mm-hmm. of Vietnam. So what does power mean in that situation, right. right? I think like that comes into leadership. Right. And like that guy, if he wants to get his mission accomplished and if he wants to survive, mm-hmm. he needs to use good leadership and he needs to mm-hmm. use maybe not necessarily bargaining, but he needs to inspire people to to have a common purpose and mm-hmm. to do what needs to be done to, you know, for them all to make it out of the jungle alive, right? Mm-hmm. And that's certainly where the military is moving with like, they call it a contiguous battlefield where there's no, the enemy is not clear. It's not clear where he's coming from. It's not clear what his intentions necessarily are because they're very operating in cells and they give they try to give the most autonomy to the lowest lowest level, right? Mm. Rather than telling, you know, each, because there's all the tiers of, of hierarchy, they try to give the lower levels, like one person will usually have three subgroups under them and that kind of cascades down. Mm-hmm. They'll make their intentions clear and what they want to happen, mm. but they won't say, you need to do this to make what I want happen. They'll generally say, this is what I want happening. This is kind of how I see you achieving it. But you need to make your intention clear because mm. the situation is going to change so quickly. The people below you need to be empowered to operate independently mm-hmm. and still get your mission done. Right. Right. So, um, that, so they sort of a belief in the person's abilities rather than having to tell them how to act. Because in the in the in, the, in those difficult moments nobody can tell you how to act you have to make yeah, the yeah, decisions yeah. you have to kind of believe in the mission statement and believe yeah. that's what's gonna you yeah, know win is, or get them out alive and that's a, similar to parenting like if we're going to tell our kids how to behave and how to act and everything and when they can't they won't be doing it for themselves so mm-hmm. that true maturity is when you start to make decisions yourself uh so I, i'm hoping like the old style of parenting and 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 you know, sort of making children act a certain way to help them grow up, it doesn't. It just doesn't work. Yeah, you know, people get, and it's funny because I have clients be, uh, who tell me they something like, "Well, I deserved you know every discipline I got." I'm like, really? Did hmm. you really? But sometimes we buy into it, and and retrospectively we think, "Well, maybe I must have been a terrible kid because I got beaten." Yeah, and I'm like. No, the system of power over you is what was terrible, not mm. you. But it must be really hard if you, like I imagine a lot of times you have a, a child who, you know, they have certain genetic predispositions to anxiety or and it just there's just a tough situation. Mm-hmm. Right. But it must be tough for you when there's a kid that you can clearly see where their parent and they've parents have demanded and you can just clearly see all the faults in the parent and this is just like maybe a really likable kid that you get along with and you like that must be a hard situation it is and actually when family therapy first was developed and created back in kind of the 60s i think or you know uh one of the terms they used is when the family came in the, they had a, the IP or identified patient was the person who the family said was ill. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah. I like the way that's the IP, that's the identified patient, but that doesn't mean they're the ill ones. Right. It's, it could be the family dynamic has created that person as the person who's being blamed for the problems. 
hmm. or, or, or being told they have a problem. And so to look at it that way, you're kind of thinking of it more like a system problem, not the individual. So the IP was just the person that the system is defined as being ill. Have you ever encountered somebody in therapy that you've come to believe is just like a bad person, like not just bad at being a person, but they have, like they enjoy seeing other people mm. suffer and there's no amount of like counseling or talking through their problems that's going to make this person somebody that you're going to be, mm-hmm. you know, excited about saying, yeah, this was a client of mine and now look <laughs> at them, you know? <laughs> well, that's a good, you know, that's a whole story area of study that i i I haven't read a lot about but it's still controversial like whether there are people you know called let's say sociopaths or another term is psychopath so a person perhaps who doesn't have the ability to empathize with others and the reason I think it's a, is controversial, I mean, it should be controversial because it's not black or white, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. either some people, have, it's not like some people have no empathy and then other people it's have spectrum. empathy. It's a spectrum, yeah. yeah. And so some people, and, and somebody who doesn't seem to have empathy may be able to develop empathy and it might look like somebody who's been hot, you know, really abused doesn't seem to have empathy, but it's because of their experiences. But it's also possible there are some people born with the biological, you know, built into them, not, they can't, aren't capable of understanding other people's feelings and awareness from their perspective. Mm-hmm. But it's, I, I always find it really a, a controversial subject because sometimes if you think it's just a label, then if somebody's difficult, oh, that person's a sociopath. And then there's like, oh, they can't be changed. Right. Therapy can't change them. They're born that way. So it's a risky thing to, uh, if you're going to use that category to make sure that it makes sense and that it, 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 it that you haven't mislabeled somebody and given up on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so have, have you had this type of person as a patient before? You know, I, I, when I think back, I don't know if I have, I think there's people that you really worry about that, but if anybody, and people that stay with therapy, <laughs> probably do have some sense of empathy because they want to resolve something in themselves. It's mm-hmm. the people who never come in for therapy, maybe, who maybe don't have any, they don't think they have a problem because they maybe they're not aware of how they might be hurting others or they're not concerned uh, about, you know, just they don't, they might not have a sense of ethics or morality that would kind of comes from empathy. Okay. So those people might not show up on your doorstep. Hmm. So even uh, if those people, like they say, their relationships have all deteriorated and they have addictions or they they just don't think that something, changing something within their self could solve that. They, they also maybe would have a, is it generally correlated to external locus of control with, uh, with sociopathy? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good term. I, you know, I talked about that earlier, right? Internal locus being that I can change myself inside. External being I'll change things on the outside. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where I can control. Um, I don't know. You know, I like I said, I haven't done a lot of studying on that. I think what I understand is that sometimes they, if without fee, without empathy, you can be freed up to do a lot of manipulative things. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you might be very effective in certain professions, or mm-hmm. you might be really good at 
uh, you know, you might be good at crime or something because you're not concerned about the victims. Yeah. Um, Certainly there's lots of, like, you know, you hear about these opportunistic criminals who do stupid things and get caught, but there's also, like, so many opportunities that are presented just in, I'm assuming, everybody's life where it's like, you could do this and you'd certainly get away with it. Like, there's only... Like serial killers, like mm-hmm. you know, is a good example. I just watched the show Mindhunter. Have you seen that on Netflix? No. Oh, it's pretty. It's a CIA, you know, Quite early yeah, right. uh, go find a kind of developing profiles of serial killers and interviewing them. But right. um, yeah, they're like, it's like if you get into degrees disagreement with your spouse and you decide to murder your spouse, like you're probably going to be caught, right? You have to cover. But if you just decide I'm going to go kill somebody and you rent like. That would be exceptionally hard to catch somebody, right? Like, right. You, it's very easy to get away with that kind of thing. Or yeah. if you, yeah, if and, you, and if it's you, so outside of most people's understanding. Like, what are they getting out of it, right? Like, yeah, what kind is a person like that born where they they would find some reward, some thrill, where mm-hmm. most people are horrified by the idea because. You know, it's our human nature, I think, to have some compassion to other people. It's, it's built into us, you know. Yeah. You know? yeah. And yet maybe there are some people, I don't know, you know, how many. And I think that's what we have to be careful because then we can start thinking somebody's a sociopath. So you just write them off. Mm-hmm. And people sometimes throw it around in a very yeah. light way. Oh, yeah, my ex-wife uh, was a sociopath or something. Like, yeah. Really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um now, the other thing I'm curious about is, uh, is like when you, when you have, it must be a great feeling like the departure of some, like a, a client, like when they actually leave and finish therapy, like how does, how does that affect your, your mental state? And similarly, like it must be so draining talking to people all day about their problems. Like, does that affect your mood? And do you, how do you avoid bringing that home? Hmm. Good question. I mean, in both of them. So the first one, um, yeah, it's it, you know, it's really extremely rewarding doing this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I have to be honest with you, I, what I didn't find it as rewarding at the beginning. I was more interested in. I was just fascinated by people and their minds, and sometimes like, oh, well, psychology yeah. seems interested. But I didn't really understand the reward that comes from when you actually help somebody. And you see them, then it's like, oh, that felt satisfying. You know, like I felt like I was part of something that was pretty meaningful. I didn't really get that until I was doing it a lot. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like, I want to go out there and help people. Yeah. I mean, it might have been in me somewhat, right? And we all have that and rewarding, you know, to, to do that. But it was when I saw what happens when somebody does get better and that you've helped them. Then there's this sense of like, that was meaningful for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I like that because in the military... I think everybody likes to think they're part of something and doing something meaningful, but some people would have this, often it'd be somebody that was not doing their job, but they would have this narrative like, I'm part of the military and I joined to serve my country. And it's like, let's be real for a second. We all joined because we did the calculation that you're going to give me X amount of benefits, X this and X this, and here's the qualifications I need. And you're going to pay for my schooling in this order. Like, None of us are like, I just don't believe your narrative. Like, and do you really believe it? Because if you believe it, 
we've got problems. I right. think. Yeah. That I really did this for my country. Yeah, come on. <laughs> come on. And yet, yeah, there's a, you know. But I think that does grow. Like, I'm not denying true right. heroism. Like, I'm, yeah, I certainly am not that. Um, I was like worked in the background in engineering and logistics but there is guys that do incredibly heroic mm-hmm. things but i think those guys are generally doing it for like the team mm-hmm. around them not their mm-hmm. country not their some country. such a abstract idea yeah. camaraderie um, and a real empathy for others and one yeah yeah and I, and i find that in the work but one of the ways that i found in the, like you said the second part of burning out or feeling troubled by it that can be part of this thing that, that ties into what we were talking about, the expert thing. Like if you think you have the job of fixing people, mm. then you kind of like feel like, what am I going to do? And how do I say the right thing? And where am I? You know, what is the thing that's going to make them change? And that actually is counter to what you want because you want right. them to change. So you become more of a person on the sidelines saying, is this helping? Or what do you want to do? Where do you want to so in a sense, you take the pressure off yourself because they have to make the changes. And the more you believe that, the less pressure is on you. All you can do is kind of create the conditions where they might look at themselves and make choices. So you don't carry it home yeah. as much. Like at the beginning, I know it's, I lie in bed. Oh, my God, did I ask them about suicidal ideation or something? Mm-hmm. And then it's I, on the onus is on them ultimately. Well, you know, Somewhere. generally, if you certainly today, if somebody started to say something that sounded like that, I would ask, but I'm not going to ask everybody and feel like I have to be responsible for mm-hmm. every choice they make. In even if you know they're talking about something that had nothing to do with suicidal age, and I don't, yeah, I, I don't feel like I have to make sure they don't do that behavior. So I don't, you know, I don't take that on. I, I'd listen to them. Uh, what their issue is and then ask them what they thought they could do and how they're going to resolve it and mm-hmm. then the therapy works you know during that hour let's say and then i i know i can't do more afterwards you know they'll have to yeah next time we will pick it up again uh and so in that sense i don't i don't burn out but I, and I, but there is at times i have to you know when you've seen somebody who's really been mistreated or mm-hmm. been through terrible you know trauma of some sort where you're gonna empathize and feel it yourself and then you're gonna but what i found sometimes is the worst ones you get you know three or four somewhere along the way that are really painful and after that you're a bit like well i can't you know feeling depressed for them won't help me Mm -hmm. i have to stay thinking about change and the possibilities of change Mm -hmm. and not get like into that hopeless sense so yeah because that's not helpful no like that kind of buddhist thing you were talking yeah Yeah. if you focus on this is terrible that people do this to each other i mean then then you're going to get stuck in that thought and you're not going to be you're going to carry that around so you have to say yeah but people are healing and we're doing our best to heal so i'm going to stay on that part of it and then you can walk out of that saying there i did my best for that person during that time and the world is full of, you know, terrible trauma, war and rape and, and, and violence. And, but it's also, we're all trying to get through that. So you can yeah. focus on the, which narrative kind of, right? The narrative, like everything is going to the, the dogs or we're trying our best to move forward. 
And that's kind of a choice. Which one yeah. will I listen to? Which story? And again, back to the narrative, which is more effective? Mm-hmm. If I focus on what's going wrong and all the things, will I be helping in the sense of trying to overcome it? Yeah. Not if I feel overwhelmed by it, but if I'm doing something about, well, I'll do my best with it, then all that story will motivate me to do more. So I think that's a great place to leave it. I've kept you all night here and I really <laughs> appreciate you coming out. Do you have any uh, any closing remarks for people to think about um, narrative therapy or even get in touch with you if they're interested in that in Victoria? Well, I'm closing. I mean, uh, I I would say that my, my the thing that I'm most interested in these days that like we were talking about a lot is just is fear itself. Fear turns into anxiety, turns into depression, turns, into, and and if we look at fear in our life and we choose to kind of like go towards it, or mm-hmm. the way I like to go, we have to go from avoidance of fear, which is what our old brain wants us to do. To a radically different position, which is bring it on. Okay, <laughs> which yeah. is a great say. In other words, if you want to, if you bring it on, I can deal with that. It's own. It's a distortion. It's a delusion or an illusion, whatever you want to say. Fear isn't happening now. It's a thing that your brain is creating for you. But if you say, "I've had it with fear. Mm-hmm. I'm going towards it. I'm going to embrace the things I've been avoiding." It will work after, you know, three or four attempts when you choose to go towards it. It will actually work. Your brain will stop, you know, sending all this fear messages, alarm bells, you know, going off and you'll you'll overcome. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a super positive message, really, <laughs> because like you can't say that about dieting. It's like three or four <laughs> attempts at dieting and you'll be exactly, exactly in the right place. It's like, your yeah. body won't absorb food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it can be very optimistic amidst all the, the suffering around. Or is, mm-hmm. There's another story of that you can overcome a lot of it. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Tim. And I'd love to do this again. Okay. That was great. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for listening to my discussion with Tim. I found it very interesting how psychological counseling has generally moved from a more prescriptive approach to just active listening. And it's a great reminder for me to be a better listener. That's that's not a new concept, but the fact that people in some often very desperate situations can come out of that just by having one person listen to them intently for an hour a week can bring them out of that situation. I, I think that's a really good reminder for me of how important that skill is to cultivate for the people around you. And I think it's also a reciprocal thing. Anyway, um, I hope you got as much as I did out of that. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns about the episode, please hit me up on Twitter at ContraPodcast or email at ContraPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.